today, as uh, Taylor mentioned at the outset, we are continuing on our journey through Lent. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with Lent, it's the season of time uh, leading up to the celebration of Easter. And uh, it, it's a time where typically people uh, give up something or take up something as a way of identifying with Christ's journey to the cross um, and as a way of drawing closer to God. And it's about this time in Lent. T- today is the, the fifth Sunday of Lent. We have one more Sunday left. Next Sunday begins what's called Holy Week. So next Sunday begins the observance of the last week of Christ's life. So we'll have Palm Sunday next Sunday and then Good Friday the following Friday and then we celebrate Easter Sunday. But it's about this point in Lent where I have some familiar conversations with people, the fifth or sixth week, where I'll see people and I'll say, I'll say hey, how's, how's Lent going for you? And they're like, well, you know, I gave up coffee, but I've struggled really. I've cheated just a little bit. Or, you know, I've talked to some people and they, they've kind of said, you know, I, I really wanted to read through Luke and do some of the calendar stuff. And I, I did it a few days, but it didn't really, didn't really make it happen that much. Or some people are like, I am a slacker. I have not done anything. I haven't really even tried. I'm sorry. And, and maybe it's just me, but all of these conversations feel a little bit like, I mean, we're not Catholic, but I kind of feel like they need to come to the pastor for absolution. Like, <laughs> like I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I need to confess that I haven't done my Lent stuff. And I get it, you know, I get this, you know, the struggle is real, like committing to giving something up or taking something up in a period like Lent is challenging, it's, it's difficult. Uh, this, you know, this Lent season, I made the decision I was gonna do, one day a week, I was gonna do a complete media fast. Uh, I was gonna, you know, turn my phone into a dumb phone. I even turned the settings to make it black and white so I, rem- I remember like, hey, this thing is not to be used for anything else. So no social media, no, no podcasts, I don't watch any Netflix or television, and no, I don't listen to the radio when I'm in my car. I was getting ready last week, and um, I was about 10 minutes into my favorite podcast as I was getting ready, and I was like, oh, shoot, like today is the day I'm supposed to be fasting. And there was just this, this moment, it was just, just this realization of like, oh, man, this feeling of failure, like I had screwed up, like I had, like I had done something wrong. And, and it, I mean, it, like, it didn't wreck my day, it was just a moment. I mean, I continued to get ready and I just continued moving through the day. But as I was thinking back about that experience and about the conversations I've had with other people, I realized that there's something that's in us. That when we commit to anything, we commit to doing something, there's this strong drive and motivation to follow through to, with it. And, and if we don't, there's a sense of disappointment or a feeling of failure that we can have that we somehow fell short. And all of us have this in some form or another. Some of us have it more than others. Uh, anybody go to the Enneagram workshop yesterday and figure out that you're a three? Any threes? Anybody? Okay, okay, there's one. So, so if you just Google the Enneagram if you didn't go to the workshop. The threes are the ones who can teach us all about what accomplishment is like and how you set goals and you accomplish things and you follow through and you always do them. And if you don't, you feel really bad about it. Because we all, but we all have some measure of that, right? Like there's some personalities or some wirings that tend towards that more, but we all have a sense of that, especially as I think as Americans, I think our culture really values getting things done getting stuff done, being efficient and accomplishing, setting goals and, and getting the things done that we set out for. We love 
strategic planning. And, and, and you know what? That served us really well. In most aspects of life, that's really beneficial. It certainly served America well. It's made us prosperous. It's made us powerful. And in most areas of all of our lives, this kind of accomplishment mentality actually serves us well. But there's one area of life where it actually isn't that helpful, where it can actually become hurtful. And that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to take a look at a story that comes out of the Bible that I think illustrates how when we bring this accomplishment mentality that we have in every other aspect of our life, every other sphere of our life, it can actually be detrimental as it relates to our faith and our relationship with God. So we're going to be back in the book of Luke today. If you have your Bibles, you can pull those out. We're going to be in Luke 13 today. If you're using one of the black Bibles in your seat, the story we're going to look at is on page 728. And as always, we're going to put the verses on the screen as well. So if you're new to church, new to New Denver, maybe new to the Bible, just a reminder, Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. Uh, Luke was a physician, a doctor who was commissioned to write a two-volume history of, the, of Jesus's life and of the early church. So the book of Luke and the book of Acts, those two books in our Bible were written by this man, Luke. So if you didn't know it, the Bible is not one book, it's lots of books. And these two were written by this guy, Luke. And the one we've been looking at as we've been going through Lent is the story stories that he tells, the accounts that he tells, the biography, if you will, of Jesus's life. And so as, he, as we've been going through the book, what we've done is on, uh, during the week, we've invited you to read along. We've broken it up into sections. Some of us have been reading it together. And then on Sundays, we're choosing one story and we're diving in a little bit deeper. We, we take a story where Jesus has an encounter with one person or a group of people to try and discover what is it that that we can learn from this particular section or this particular story. So if you, if you remember, if you've been with us uh, the last few weeks, you may remember that, that Jesus has embraced at this point in the story that part of his story, part of his mission is that he's heading to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, arrested, executed, and that he will be raised to life again. That this is a part of God's plan for him. He's accepted this. A few weeks ago, we talked about the verse where it says that he set his face, literally meaning he, he determined that that was where he was headed. He knows that that's a part of his plan. But at this point, at this point, his followers have not quite figured that out. They have not quite gotten that into, into their heads yet. He continues traveling and he continues teaching and he's got a group of followers that are going with him, 12 very close followers, but a larger set of people that come and then crowds that will come to hear him teach. And the thing he regularly is teaching about, maybe more than anything else, is this concept of the kingdom of God. He keeps talking about what the kingdom of God is like and how you will enter into and experience the kingdom of God. This idea that, that you can enter into a place or an experience of, of God's dwelling where things are as they are supposed to be, where things are reconciled and redeemed and set right, and what that looks like. And as he ta starts talking about this, he's dropping in also these, these, these little hints that, that part of the plan and part of the mission is that he's going to die which just doesn't make sense. There's this misunderstanding that's taking place constantly where everyone who's listening to him, even his closest followers, have this expectation that the kingdom of God that he's talking about is an actual literal kingdom because that's what they're looking for. 
As faithful Jews, they had been anticipating and looking for the Messiah, the Savior, the person who was going to come and who was going to throw off the the Romans, who was going to lead Israel back to greatness again, make Israel great again. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be a kingdom with a king, and you can't be king if you're dead. So they just kind of ignored these little hints that he was dropping about his death that was coming. But there was also confusion about the very nature of God's kingdom and about the character and nature of God himself. And so what we see in this story we're going to take a look at today, it illustrates the confusion and the misunderstanding around Jesus, but it also gives us some interesting insight, I think, into our own confusion about Jesus and about God's kingdom. So as we pick up the story today, starting in verse 10 of chapter 13, we read this. It says, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. So I'm going to stop right there. The story takes place on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? If you've, maybe you've heard that word, maybe you're familiar with it, but the Sabbath was very central to, to Jewish culture and Jewish life. It's part of the Ten Commandments, the laws that, that God gave to Moses, to the Israelites, when he established Israel as a nation, as a people. And he gave it to them and he said this in Exodus 20. He said, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. So part of maintaining covenant, right covenant relationship with God for the Israelites was observing the Sabbath. Six days they were to work, but one day they were to set aside and not do any work. They were to worship God and to remember that actually everything that had gone before, everything that they'd done, everything that they had, everything that they were, was a gift from God. That was part of what the Sabbath was about. But Sabbath even predates the giving of the Ten Commandments. If you go back and read the story of Moses and the Israelites, the Exodus story, which if you didn't read the story, if you haven't read the story before, you've probably seen the movie, Charlton Heston or the Prince of Egypt, the animated version. You know this story. While they were wandering around in the desert, after they had left Egypt, after they had left captivity in Egypt and they're wandering in the desert, God gives them food. They're in the desert. He gives them food and water and he gives them food in the form of manna, a kind of bread that would just appear every day, except the sixth day, a double amount would appear. Why? Because he says, the seventh day is a Sabbath. I don't want you to even have to go up, go out and pick up the bread that I've provided for you. I want you to rest. And I want you to remember me and to remember that I provide for you. I want this to be a day of relationship for us. So the setting of the story is the Sabbath. And, and this is the time that, that, that God is teaching his people to depend on him. He wants this woven into their life. He, he wants them, this woven into the way that they think about things. And the Sabbath extended, if you read through uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all of the different ways that the Sabbath extended into everyday life for the people of Israel, it went way bef- beyond just one day a week. There were regular festivals and seasons of time where they were to worship and not work. There, were, there was an entire year, every seventh year, they were supposed to forgive the debts that were outstanding. They were supposed to leave their fields fallow. They weren't supposed to farm at all, to just trust that the other six years previous had been plentiful enough to provide for them. They could even let the ground rest. So Sabbath was incredibly important. So this story is taking place on this special, important day that is central to the life of Jewish people. And that's what Jesus is doing is he's coming on the Sabbath and he's teaching. And where is he he teaching? He's teaching in a synagogue. 
So he's teaching in a synagogue. Synagogues were gathering places in small villages and towns. The center of religious life for Israel was the temple. That's where the sacrifices took place. But you couldn't go to the temple every, every day or even every week if you lived far away and you had to walk. And so they reserved that for special feasts and holidays and when they had to go and make sacrifices. But most of the time they would go to their local synagogue and they would listen to a synagogue leader or teacher come and talk about the scriptures. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's playing that role of the teacher in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And we continue, it says, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now we're introduced to this woman who was present in the synagogue on this day. And we don't know much about her. We're only told that she had been crippled for 18 years. And Luke adds this diagnostic element that she was crippled by a spirit. And I don't want to get hung up on this, but I do just want to mention it really quickly. Because if you're here and you're not a Bible person or, or you don't read the Bible regularly, you may hear this and you think, this woman was crippled, she was bent over, and this guy's attributing it to a spirit. That's weird. So let me just say two things about that. Number one, I don't think it's fair to critique a doctor with two, you know, who was diagnosing someone with 2,000 years of scientific and medical advancement. It's not really fair for us to judge his diagnostic capabilities. He thought it was a spirit. That's how he was diagnosing it. That's what he said it was. Secondly, let me just say, if we're people who believe in metaphysical things, that, that is that there are realities that exist beyond the things we can see and feel and touch, that, that our emotional well-being can affect our physical well-being, that our spiritual well-being can in fact, in, in fact impact our physical well-being as well, aren't we open to the possibility that maybe this woman's ailment was both spiritual and physical? So that's all I'm gonna say about that. But... <laughs> What's most important to me is to think about this woman and to try to empathize with the reality of a woman who for 18 years had been crippled. Now, Luke intentionally doesn't say she was crippled since birth, so this wasn't a kind of a birth defect sort of a thing. This is something that happened to her later, some sort of affliction that caused her to be bent over where she could not straighten up for 18 years. 18 years, think about how long that is. 18 years ago, it was 2001. What was going on in your life 18 years ago and how much life has transpired since then? Elevate students, you don't even get to play because you weren't even alive yet. You guys weren't even alive yet. I, for me, I was single. I wasn't even dating my wife yet, no kids. I, I wasn't even working as a pastor yet. I wasn't even living in this country at this time 18 years ago. What about you? How many, how many years have transpired for you? Think about just nationally, culturally, 18 years ago today, 9-11 hadn't happened yet. It would happen later in the year. There were no smartphones. The iPhone hadn't been invented yet. In fact, the iPod wouldn't be released until October of 2001. 18 years is a long time. And this is the amount of time that Jesus, that, that Luke says, that this woman that Jesus sees in the synagogue this day has been crippled and unable to stand, 18 years. The story continues, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Jesus sees her, 
He sees her in her infirmity and he calls to her and she comes forward. Look what he says to her. He doesn't say you're healed. He says you're set free. Then he puts his hand on her. She stands up straight for the first time in 18 years. Her life just changed. I mean, think about what those 18 years must have been like. I'm guessing she's tried all manner of different things, gone to doctors or or experts or tried any number of home remedies, whatever she could do. And suddenly on this day, she's come and this man, just by putting his hands on her, has set her free. He's changed her life in a moment. And her response in that moment is interesting. What does she do? She straightens up and the first thing she does is to praise God. She acknowledges that God is the source of her healing, of her freedom that has been given to her. Jesus sees her. He calls to her. He sees her spiritual and her physical affliction and he doesn't ignore it. He calls to her. He brings her forward. He puts his hands on her and he sets her free. And her immediate reaction is to acknowledge God and to praise him. Now contrast her response to the synagogue leader. And the synagogue leader in this story is representative of the religious leaders of the time. He's representing the prevailing attitudes and opinions of what Jewish religious leaders would have thought. And as we see from other stories throughout the gospels, throughout Jesus's life, this is the repeated reaction that religious leaders have to Jesus when he does something amazing. This is not the only time he heals on the Sabbath. This is not the only time he gets this reaction. This happens over and over and over again. Verse 14, indignant indignant, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Translation, you're doing it wrong. Stop it. You're breaking the rules. You can't do it. This this is not how it works. You have to come to me as the synagogue leader on Monday, you know, any day, Sunday through Monday. We can't come on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Preferably between eight and five. That would be best for me. If you would come then, that's when the healing takes place. That's when we do the work of healing. He's mad. He's indignant at Jesus because he thinks that Jesus which he sees as a human being, is doing some sort of physical work, breaking the Sabbath. But then strangely, he turns on the people and he's mad at them. Don't come here looking for healing on this day. You gotta come all the other days of the week. He clearly has a very narrowly defined view about how God works. And it's controlled by his interpretation of how the rules work, how the law works. And you have to follow that if you get God's blessing. Otherwise, you're outside of of God's will. You're, You're breaking the law. You're doing something wrong. Jesus immediately exposes how flawed and contradictory this understanding of the Sabbath and of God was. Look what he says. Verse 15, the Lord, Jesus, that is, answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath, untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give, to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. 
You see, Jesus exposes how little that they understand about the Sabbath and about the nature of God's relationship with us. He says, hey, look, every day of the week, regardless of what day it is, you go out as owners of livestock and they're tied up in your barn or wherever you keep them and you untie them and you bring them out. You care for them and give them water. They don't have to do anything to earn that or to accomplish that. You just do it because you want to care for them. And he uses this turn of phrase. He says, shouldn't this woman, and he reminds them, a daughter of Abraham, which was code for one of you, part of your tribe, part of the covenant people of Israel. Shouldn't she be treated just as well as animals? Doesn't she deserve to be unbound, to be set free? You treat animals this way, but you're not even willing to grant this to this woman? And it seems so bizarre and crazy when we, when we step back and we think about it. Why would they think that way? Why would they not be celebrating with this woman who's receiving freedom, who's being healed on this day? Why were they so narrow-minded and so focused on following the rules? But before we get too critical of them, don't we do the same thing when we come to God? Aren't we looking for the things that we need to do and how we need to do it and the ways we need to do them? Isn't there even a little part of you when you read stories like this about people who get healed, don't you think in your mind at least a little bit, maybe the smallest part, even subconsciously, I wonder what she did to make that happen. I wonder what she did to catch Jesus' attention. Maybe she sat down front so that she would be seen, so that he would see that she was crippled. Maybe she did that. wonder if she said a special prayer before she went to synagogue that day. I wonder what it is that she did. It's funny, there's a part of us that feels like we have to be a part of the process, that we have to do something in order to get God to move on our behalf. Isn't it the same way that we feel when we feel that twinge of guilt or anxiety or failure when we don't follow through on the things we said we wanted to do about Lent? Isn't it the same feeling of failure or not following through, not accomplishing what we wanted to accomplish when we don't read the Bible as much as we want to or we don't pray as much as we, we think we should or we don't come to church on Sundays? I can't tell you how many times I run into people out in the city somewhere and I'm like, oh, it's so good to see you. How you been? How are things? How are your kids? Well, let me, I, it's been really crazy lately. I mean, work has got me, it's been nuts. The kids have been sick and I'm so sorry. I mean, we haven't been at church for, you know, I know we haven't been there and I'm sorry. I always tell them the same thing. I'm like, we don't, we don't take attendance, but God does. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't say that last part, but isn't there, isn't that sort of part of the motivating feeling that makes us sort of make those excuses or want to say, that's why we haven't been doing these things. That feeling that we should be doing more, accomplishing more for God. Which is why I think this story is so important. We're reminded that ultimately it's not about what we do or what we can do. It's about what God does for us. We're like this woman who just shows up on the Sabbath the day when no work could or should be done and something amazing happens and all she can do is receive it. All she can do is receive what's given to her. God offers 
freedom and asks nothing in return. There's nothing that prompts it or motivates it. It's just received. Simply have to accept it and to receive it. That's a gift. That is grace. And as important as this story is to illustrate that and to remind us it's not about following the rules or accomplishing or earning God's favor or his relationship with us, what comes next is maybe more important. Look what Jesus says next, verse 18. You could miss this really easily. Verse 18, because it seems like a separate, disconnected uh, sort of section story. Jesus then asks, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like the yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. The little Greek word here that's translated as then, it's a logical connecting phrase which connects what's gone before to what's coming next. Luke wants us to know that these two things are connected. This story of a woman who comes on the day where she could do no work and receives what God has for her, the freedom that he has for her. This is a story that's emblematic about what Jesus was up to. And it's connected to what the kingdom of God is like. Twice Jesus asks the rhetorical question, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? And he answers with two answers, an external and an internal. He says it's like the tiniest seed, a mustard seed, the smallest seed you can imagine that if you plant it in the ground and tend it and water it, it grows and it becomes something you see and is visible and it's huge and the birds come and land in it. And it's something that works internally, it's invisible. It's like yeast that you work into a batch of flour and then when you make the dough, it works its way all through the dough. Luke's making a connection for us between what happens in the story and something important about Jesus and about the kingdom of God for everyone who would ever read this story. There's nothing accidental about Jesus' actions here. He comes to a woman who's bound spiritually and physically, and he sets her free. But Jesus didn't just come to heal individuals. Jesus came to heal all of humanity, to set all of us free. This woman's story is our story. But our story is also entangled with those who said, this is not how it's done. This is not following the rules. We think that grace is too good to be true. We think that it's impossible that God could simply love us and set us free without asking anything of us in return. And we feel pulled back to a familiar pattern where we work and accomplish and earn what it is that we get in life. And why wouldn't we? That's the way all of life works. You work hard or you go hungry. You help me, I'll help you. Study hard on the test, you get good grades. But that's not how it works with God. That's not how it works. The work is already done. It's already been done for us. And regardless of where you are today in your spiritual journey, that's really good news. If you're here and you're not a church person, you're not sure what you believe about God or Jesus or any of this stuff, let me just tell you that at the center of the universe, the center of all things is a being of infinite love who created you. 
and loves you and accepts you right where you are. There's nothing you have to do to earn that. There's nothing that you have to do to achieve that. All you have to do is to receive it and believe it. And for those of us who've been on this journey for a while, we, we have accepted and we have believed that, we keep getting pulled back too. We need to be reminded daily, sometimes hourly, that it's not dependent on what we do. It's dependent on what has already been done for us. We simply receive it. And when we do, that transforms us. That small mustard seed of belief, that small amount of yeast of belief in our life works its way internally and externally through all dimensions of our life. And the change is noticeable. And the change is real. At this point in the story, Jesus has already committed himself for where he's heading. He's on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross, on his way to do the work that the Father gave him to do, the work that no one else could do, the work we could never do for ourselves. All we have to do is to receive that, to believe that it's true. And when that tiny seed gets planted in our life, everything changes. But before that can happen, we have to let go. We have to stop trying to earn. When that feeling bubbles up inside of you that I've got to do more, I've got to accomplish more, I should, I should, I should be doing, I should, you've got to let that go and remind yourself the work has already been done. It's the Sabbath. Just receive what God has already done and let that transform you. Live from that place. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, it's, um, it's been a long time since I first wrestled with and thought about this story, and I'm still wrestling with it. <clears throat> Something in me wants to take over and to feel like uh, I need to do more, um, that I let you down when I don't do the things that I feel that I should do, but... God, when I come back to that place, that centered place of knowing that I just show up and receive, that you've already done the work, it changes the way that I think about my relationships, my work, my life, everything. It transforms me from the inside out and the change is real. I pray for myself and for everyone here, God, that we would increasingly be able to live from that place. We would be able to know that we were accepted and that we are loved right where we are that our actions are not inconsequential, they matter and you do care, but they don't earn us anything. Your love has already been earned by the work of Jesus. May we live from that place this week and every week, more and more and more. And pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.